And Lord Jesus, we know that your sacrifice on the cross washed us white as snow. Lord, we can do all that we can. We can live our lives for all that it's worth for you. And Lord, we'll never be able to repay that great sacrifice. But Lord, not out of merit, but out of thanksgiving. Those of us who call upon your name as Savior. Lord, we live lives as ambassadors. We live lives as disciples. And Lord, we seek to live lives as of ones who are holy and reflect your character. Lord, would you be with us now? As in a little bit of time, we'll be leaving this place and we'll be going into our lives, we'll be going into the world. Lord, would you go before us as we too go as ambassadors? And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today we're talking about values. Uh, Those of you who are joining us for the first time today, here about August, September each year, we go through again uh, a vision for our church and and walk through more than just the idea in large of vision, but we break it down into four sections here. Uh, Our mission, which we looked at last week, our mission very simply, and we know that every church, each and every church across the face of this earth for all time and eternity basically has the same mission, which is the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples of all nations. So each church might have individual language that really fits what we're doing that all points back, though, to that Great Commission to go and make disciples. And our mission is leading people to follow Jesus, using that same language that he used for someone who gives their life and surrenders their life to Jesus, following him. So we're leading people to follow Jesus and to live like Jesus, because we know the ultimate expression of growth in Jesus Christ and maturity and discipleship is that it will play itself out practically day by day and that we are living, not perfectly, but we are growing to become and we are living like Jesus. So our mission is leading people to follow Jesus and to live like Jesus. And so also today, as we're looking at, we're going to be looking at one week worth of values. Last time, if you were with us last August, we broke these down individually week by week. But today we're going to look at the entirety of what do we value as a church and then looking at motivations and values as an individual. And that's what we're drawing from in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, as we use that for a a jumping off point, if you will, uh, for our values and what motivates us. But Famous quote by a famous uh, leader on leadership. Peter Drucker says this, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. He's one of these leadership gurus, and man, he is spot on there. It doesn't matter how wonderful of a strategy we have or how well laid out this whole vision is that, we, again, we launched last uh, fall. It doesn't matter uh, how, how well laid out it is. If our culture doesn't change, if culture of any organization doesn't change, then it doesn't matter how good a strategy is. And the wonderful thing is, I was just talking to someone earlier today, and in fact, during the welcome time, and just bragging of how the Lord is really building us into a church family. We've been a church family for years, no doubt, but you can just see that sort of close-knit, that, that, that sort of... Um, that we all have our hand on the rope, we all have our hand on the plow, accomplishing God's mission of making disciples in our world, and all the time that we're drawing closer together, just this unity of a family, and it's just really refreshing to see. 
The culture, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture must, in any organization, continue to change. And when we think about uh, a church, the culture, our culture of our church must continue to point towards God's culture, must continue to point towards Scripture. Here's the thing. As we look at our vision frame, we put that up on the screen. Again, mission, what are we doing? We're leading people to follow Jesus and live like Jesus. Today, we're going to look at, in its entirety, this value section, which answers the question, why are we doing it? We're doing it because we value these things right here. We value these things. And as we see, as we get in the midst of the sermon, it's not by accident that glorifying God is, is in bold, because that is the overarching value of the others. That just as God is supremely concerned with his glory, so too we must be concerned with glorifying God. But here's the thing. When we think about this, when we think about values, we will never accomplish God's mission. Write it down. We're going to put it on the screen. We will never accomplish God's mission until we value what God values. We'll never accomplish God's mission until we value what God values. Because it's a matter of, it doesn't matter how good our strategy is, it ultimately comes down to a matter of values. Do our values, if we're honest with ourselves as individuals, and if we're honest with ourselves as a church body, do our values align with God's values? So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to look at this again as a jumping off point because it talks about motivations in general and values in general. Familiar passage to all of us, but let's take a look at it here. Take heed, Jesus says, that you do your charitable deeds. You don't do your charitable deeds to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. But he said, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. This is really interesting because many commentators, theologians think that there's sort of a double entendre here. Not only do we get the obvious of don't you know, toot your own horn, we have a saying like that in our common nomenclature, but also there were receptacles in which they would give their offering temples and synagogues, big large bowls that would narrow at the bottom into a larger receptacle. And there's some evidence historically that they were almost called in the daily colloquialism of the, of the day that they were called horns. And so when they would sound those things, throw those in, some would say that they might throw them in in such a manner that they would be sounded and people would know, okay, I'm, that guy's throwing in a lot of money. Either way, we get the point. Jesus is saying, don't do it in such a way that you receive glory from men because if that is your motivation, well, good, there, you've got it and that's all. But he says this, But when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward himself. He himself will reward you openly. He will reward you openly. See, here's the thing. Motivations are a window into our values. Our motivations are a window into our values. And this is all about what Jesus is speaking about here. He is saying, if your motivation in this particular context, if your motivation is to be pleasing to men, if your motivation is to be pleasing in the eyes of people, if your motivation is to receive glory unto yourself, you may receive it, but that's it. You've got your reward. Motivations, in fact, they are windows into our values. You know, and it may be that if we're honest with ourselves, our motivation... Uh, what we value might be what we see here in this immediate context. 
that we might value what the, the world values and our image in the eyes of men rather than our value unto God. But, but the Bible tells us this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So he's saying what our motivation should be, what our value should be, and when we're motivated in life is the glory of God, that he receives glory and honor and praise and not us. As one great author says, when we are focused on our own glory, when we are focused on drawing attention unto ourselves, we're nothing else than a glory thief because it is glory that is to be ascribed only unto God. So when we, again, when we think about in the midst of our vision for him, answering the question, why are we doing it? So again, our mission is leading people to follow Jesus and to live like Jesus. And then we values answers the questions of, well, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? Very simply, we're doing it because we value these particular things. We value, number one, glorifying God. Glorifying God. Isaiah 48, 11 says, this one won't be on the screen, but some of us are familiar with this verse. Where God says, my glory I will not give to another. And in fact, he speaks of being one who is jealous for his own glory. This is kind of weird, isn't it? It doesn't seem to jive with what we know of God. Jealousy in our lives, jealousy in mankind, we get that. We understand that. But when we think about the, the perfect, almighty, righteous God who is holy and perfect and blameless, sometimes it doesn't seem to jive when we hear those sorts of things. But the sort of jealousy he speaks of here is a righteous jealousy. It is not the sort of capricious, impatient, self-serving jealousy. He is one that says, the glory, is, the glory is owed to no one other than me. Now, here's the thing. Again, we'd say, gosh, is this, what is this all about? By no means is God some sort of petulant child that is wanting all attention unto himself. We have to ask ourselves the question, mankind is made to glorify something. We were made to worship. We're not here by accident. God designed us, and God has designed us to worship. God has designed us to glorify something. So the question then becomes, if God is not going to tell us to, to glorify himself, the one true and perfect being, well, then who should we glorify? Who should he ask us to glorify? You see, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with glory if it is placed properly. Misplaced glory, wanting glory unto ourselves as flawed and fractured beings, is absolutely misplaced. But the God of heaven and earth, who is almighty, all-powerful, knows no limits. He is always good unto us, even when it's difficult. The limitless God, the immutable, unchangeable God, is absolutely worthy of glory. And so that's why we see in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, whatever you do, Paul, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all of these things to the glory of God. It's, an, it's, it's the end of a long section on, on personal conduct, and he's basically saying, whatever you do in life, let your first motivation be your only motivation, which is to glorify God. When we begin to glorify God, when that begins to be our first motivation, all of those other things begin to fall into their glorious place. You know, C.S. Lewis, great author, said this, in commanding us to glorify him, God, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Because here's the thing, 
We can do all that we can. Human, human beings, mankind can do all that they want to to try to act and find the, the, act like we can find our glory and find our hope and find our joy in anything else other than God. But we are truly uh, kicking against the wall, beating our head against the wall because God has designed us to find our joy and satisfaction in him and bringing glory unto him. And so C.S. Lewis says, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to, in fact, enjoy him. We were made for enjoyment. We were made for fulfillment. But when we try to find it in anything else other than God, we always run aground. We always run dry. So first of all, we value the fact, the things that we value, we're glorifying God. Also, we value reaching people. We value reaching people. Luke 15, 7, I love this. Jesus says this, I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. You see, we live in a world in which maybe some of our friends, maybe some of our acquaintances, maybe some of our neighbors or coworkers do a better job than others of kind of tamping down this sort of hopelessness that's right there in back of everyone's mind. But we live in a world that without Christ is a world of hopelessness. And yes, there are things that we can find certain joy. We can find uh, certain things that bring us happiness and gladness. But ultimately, unless we're finding our hope and joy in God, we will again ultimately run aground and run dry. And so whether it's tamped down or whether it's bubbling to the surface, we all know people that without Christ are hopeless. Let me give you a couple of quotes here from those that this sort of hopelessness was bubbling to the surface a little more. Ellen Montgomery, uh, the writer of Anne of Green Gables, in fact, in that book says this, my life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. My life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. Here's another one. Charles Bukowski, a modern writer, says this, my beer drunk soul is sadder than all the dead Christmas trees of the world. Well, that is, that paints a picture, doesn't it? We've all know those dead Christmas trees, especially if you have live Christmas tree. Of course, that'd be the only one that's alive, the only one that could be dead. But you take those Christmas trees that are live, and when they're thrown out at the street, you know, all the needles are falling off, they're getting brown. There is nothing sadder than that, except he says, my beer-drunk soul is sadder than all the dead Christmas trees of the world. Now, here's the thing. Again, without Christ, we know that this is the hopelessness and the despair of mankind. Sometimes those things are buried deeper within. Sometimes we can fill our lives with enough stuff. Sometimes the loss that we know can fill their lives with enough stuff to just kind of keep it down and keep it under the surface. But there are times, and there will come a time in their life, maybe it's again, they're just kind of laying in bed at night. Maybe the power's run out on their phone. They have to put their phone up, plug it in. They have nothing to read. Everything's just quiet. They've kind of stilled their mind, and there it is. It creeps in. Turn the TV off, they put down the media, and there it is, it creeps in. You see, we have to be ready. We have to be ready to reach people. And again, Luke 15, 7 says this, I say to you that, there, that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. You see, sometimes God gets a bad rap in our world that he's distant or aloof. And by some of the religions in the world, that is their understanding of God, is that he's distant or aloof. 
but we know the God of heaven to be the one who has created us in his image and he cares deeply and intimately for us. And so it says, again, there's more joy in over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Do we have that same sort of value? Do we value reaching people? Do we value reaching the lost as God values? Again, not only glorifying God, reaching people, but also life change. Life change. Touching back again on our mission statement, leading people to follow Jesus. That's his language for those that, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, repent, turn from your old way of life, and believe, follow him, not only as the one who is the Savior and the one who saves us from our sin, but the one who takes control of our life, our Lord. So he says to follow him, and, and, or, or we say to follow Jesus, and what? To live like Jesus. If we're growing in maturity, if we are being, being discipled, that will play itself out, that will live itself out practically in life change and becoming more like Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, it says, If indeed you've heard him, if you've heard Jesus Christ, it's a euphemism for not only hearing his word, but coming to faith in him. If indeed you've heard him and you've been taught by him, if we're immersed in his word as, the, as truth is in Jesus, guess what you'll do? He says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. We talk about this word picture in Scripture, one of the most powerful word pictures in Scripture, this idea of taking off like old, dirty clothes, old, dirty, soiled rags. So we're taking those things off daily. Yes, we've been, we've been made righteous in the eyes of God, but the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us day by day. What's our part? Our part is to daily take off that old man. As we read God's word, to take off the old man, and what do we do? It's not enough to just take it off, he says in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We have to take off that old man, to take off that old man daily. And what do we do? We become renewed in the spirit of our minds. You say, well, how do we do that? Right here, God's word. If we spend time with anybody, if we spend enough time in anything, anybody or anything, it will begin to rub off on us. And, And nothing is more gloriously true than when the Holy Spirit who lives within us is illuminating scripture. And this is the powerful word of God, which is sharper than any two edged sword. If we spend time in God's word, our minds will be renewed. And that you put on, verse 24, so we put off the old man. It doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly each and every day. It doesn't mean we're going to live in sinless perfection. But it means that we are making the choice daily as the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. Our job is to put off that old man and to put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, as we do that, it's not as though we're living outside of our nature. If we've given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and we become born again, our true nature is righteousness and it is holiness. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So putting off the old and living out the new in accordance with God's word, as we say daily, I'm going to trust your way to do this, not what my heart says or not what my friends say or not what culture says or what TV tells me to do. God, I'm going to do it your way, even if it's difficult in the midst of my life, in the midst of culture. As we do that, we begin to experience life change. So not only do we value glorifying God, reaching people, life change, but we also value authentic relationships. Authentic relationships. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. 
And let us consider one another. And let us consider one another. It doesn't mean, as we might use it sort of in our common language, oh, I'm just going to think about this person in a passing way. Oh, I've just considered him. I've just considered her. What it means here in the original context is that we're thinking deeply. We're taking our eyes off of our own personal context, and we are thinking about someone else. We are, we are giving due time to them. He says, in the midst of a church context, let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. If you've ever started a fire in your home, a real wood fire either in your home or a campfire setting, what do you do when the fire begins to die down? You stoke it, right? You start poking and you stir it up. Maybe you have one of the bellow things and you start you know, kind of doing this and just start blowing the air at the fire because what does it do? It stirs it up. That's exactly the picture here in the original context is that's what we're to be doing as a church body, as a church family. We are to be considering one another. We're not just to be passing one another like ships in the night. We are to be deeply invested in one another. And we're to stir one another up towards love and good works. And what is this? Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian that kind of lives this Christian life on his own, but, you know, I'm not part of a church. I'm just a Christian on my own, but, you know, I'm not part of a local church. There's no such thing. That's an oxymoron in in the economy of God. If we are a believer, we are to be in some church. We are to be invested in a church, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. But what do we do? We're exhorting one another, exhorting one another, that two-sided coin of growth challenging one another to grow. Sometimes it is encouraging. If you know someone and you have that authentic relationship with them, and as, we, as we've said before, do you have any 2 a.m. friends? Do you have those friends that can call you when their life has fallen apart? They can call you at 2 a.m., they wake you out of a deep sleep, and you're fine with it because you know it's your job, part of your church family. Are you encouraging them when they need to be encouraged? But then also... Are we challenging one another when we need to be challenged? Are we spurring one another on? Are we, are we challenging one another to reflect Christ's likeness in our life? Authentic relationships. And also we value lifestyle worship. Lifestyle worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. Very familiar verses to all of us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or is your act of worship, it may say in some of your translations. So what he's saying is that true worship, our sacrifice that we make unto the Lord, is the way we live our lives daily. So not only offering up our bodies, but by extension, of course, the way we live our lives. He says that that is our act of worship. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning, if you will, in a setting like this, this worship service that we do is an overflow or an outpouring, an overflow of our daily lives, our Monday through Saturday lives, if you will, living those in worship unto the Lord as we offer up our bodies and our lives as a living sacrifice to God. And how do we do it very practically? He tells us in verse 2, and don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the mold of this world. It's very easy to to, to let that happen. But be transformed. Here we see it again. How are we transformed? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, we're transformed when we renew our mind and we renew our mind by immersing our mind in the word of God. 
in obedience to that word. You say, if we immerse our mind in anything else, TV, media, if we immerse our mind in things that we know do not reflect the will of the Lord and don't reflect the character of Jesus Christ, if we're immersing ourselves in anything, TV, media, whatever it may be, uh, books, whatever it may be, those things, those types of media and those types of things that don't reflect the character of God, as much as we, we don't want to think so, as much as we say, oh, I can kind of separate it in my mind, those things don't affect, eventually if we immerse ourselves in those things, we will begin to be transformed by those things. So how do we transform our minds in such a way that please the Lord and help us to live out the character of Jesus right here, right here? We dig into the word of God. We know the word of God. We live out the word of God. Lifestyle worship. So glorifying God, reaching people, life change, authentic relationships, lifestyle worship. And then finally, the very simple question, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? Look at this. When we value what God values, we won't overvalue what the world values. When we value what God values, we won't overvalue what the world values. Let me just use one illustration of this. We know that, that finances, wealth, money, whatever it may be, that's a tool. We know very clearly that Scripture in the in, in Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. The love of money is the root of all evil. You see, that's a tool. It's a tool that can be used either for good, for things that are really match the heart of God and the mission of God, or it can be used for self-serving means. It's a tool. But here's the thing. When we value what God values, we won't overvalue what the world values. You see, oftentimes we can think, well, gosh, if, if, whether we want to admit it to ourselves or not, whether we would say this honestly to ourselves or not, maybe in the most honest of our own moments, we will be honest with ourselves. And we would think, just as we talked about last week, if my supreme motivation... If my supreme motivation is the mission of God, then what else in my life is going to fall apart? What else in my life is just not going to get the attention that it needs to? Folks, when we value what God values, all those other things take care of themselves. Do we not trust that God is big enough to take care of the areas of our life if we say, I am going to be supremely focused on his mission, and I'm going to be supremely focused on valuing what he wants me to value? So again, we are focused as a church, and as aspirational as these goals may be, this is where we are heading prayerfully. This is what we are heading to as a church body. Lord, would you help us to value these things, glorifying God, reaching people, life change, authentic relationships, and lifestyle worship. And finally, I want to end right where we started. We will never accomplish God's mission until we value what God values. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come now, we pray that you would continue to to change the areas of our church culture that needs to change. Lord, we know any church, any church, its culture needs to change because it's it's a culture made up of people. And even though a church body is made up of those who've given their lives to Christ, And Lord, we've been born again and you've changed us ultimately. There are times that we can live uh, in such a way that we're not putting off the old man. There are times that we can be motivated by sinful motivations. And Lord, a church is made up of individuals that live that way from time to time. And so Lord, in that, we know that our culture 
of any church and culture of this church must change. And so, Lord, we continue, we ask that you would continue to build us up and continue to drive our motivation and drive our focus towards valuing those things that matter most to you. And God, may it start first. We'd start first with bringing our values and our motivations back to we want to see you glorified in all that we do. We want to, we want to see that you are glorified in Wichita to the ends of the earth and everywhere in between. God, I just pray also for anyone that may be here today that has never given their life to Jesus Christ. Lord, would this be the day of their salvation? Would this be the day of their salvation? In his name we pray. Amen.